This is M.I.P. With Masamela Matsumo. Mark Thompson. Get woke. Ladies and gentlemen, our very special guest today is an award-winning historian of the 20th century United States. With broad interests and specializations in African-American history, the modern African diaspora, and women's and gender studies. She is an associate professor of history at the University of Pittsburgh and the president of the African-American Intellectual Historical History Society. She's also a columnist for MSNBC covering race, gender, and politics in historical and contemporary perspectives. She's currently a fellow at the Carr Center for Human Rights Policy at Harvard University and just recently published her book, Until I Am Free, Fannie Lou Hamer's Enduring Message to America. Dr. Keisha N. Blaine joins us on Make It Plain. Dr. Blaine, how are you? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor to have you. And thank you so much for writing about Fannie Lou Hamer. You know, more and more people invoke her name. Mm -hmm. But um, it it's sometimes does not reflect her whole life. A lot of people don't know her whole history and how she came to be. And right. so I think it's important that we have someone do that, especially another Black woman. Right about <laughs> Fannie Lou Hamer, right? It's important. It's important. So what inspired you to focus on Fannie Lou Hamer as your subject for this book? Well, I have really been, um, I think, one might say, uh, transformed by my encounter with Fannie Lou Hamer. You know, as I explained in the introduction of the book, I first encountered Fannie Lou Hamer while taking a class on the civil rights movement as a senior in college. And, uh, you know, I think my experience connects to so many others who did not learn about Fannie Lou Hamer until much later. In fact, there are still people who I think um, have no knowledge of Fannie Lou Hamer. Uh, but when I first encountered Fannie Lou Hamer, and this is spring of 2008, I was quite frankly just taken aback by how remarkable this woman was. You know, this this fearless Black woman, disabled um, activists, you know, from the state of Mississippi who really spoke truth to power, right? I mean, we, we use that phrase often and we talk about it in the contemporary context. But, but honestly, there was no one who truly spoke as powerfully as Fannie Lou Hamer spoke. When she spoke, she spoke from the heart. She did not mince words. Uh, and she, quite frankly, uh, you know, told the, the truth about American hypocrisy. Uh, and, and I was just struck uh, by a couple of things. One, her background, which I'm sure we'll, we'll talk about some more, the difficulties of her background and, you know, the way that she managed to turn uh, so many painful experiences into political action. Not, not an easy thing to do. I was uh, just impressed with her brilliance and, you know, looking at the limited formal education she received, quite frankly, no one could compete with Fannie Lou Hamer, right? I mean, even those who had a lot more uh, formal education and people from, you know, higher social, socioeconomic backgrounds, they were terrified by Hamer because when she spoke, people listened. Um, mm -hmm. And she just, I think, uh, was a gifted speaker and an organizer, a passionate activist. Uh, so reading about Hamer, 
in that context uh, was empowering for me, you know, as a young black woman, uh, as someone from, you know, a working class background, I started to see the way that I too could make a difference. And I started to dream back then about one day writing books about black people and particularly black women. And so it's, it's wonderful to be here to have this conversation, given the fact that it's been more than a decade, you know, since I first read about Hamer, but I'm honored to have an opportunity to tell her story. Well, and, and glad you had that experience. Spent the time you spent chronicling her and her life. Let's go back. Let's go over some of that history. Mm -hmm. um, what were her experiences that led her to be the activist she was? Did she have her own Keisha Blaine moment? Was there someone <laughs> that she saw who inspired her? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, I think when we have to, when we think about Fannie Lou Hamer's activism, I, I always start with August 1962, which is when she joined the movement. And this is a, a pivotal moment where Hamer had what we can talk about as two things. One, a, you know, one might say a spiritual awakening, but also a political awakening. And, and, and we understand historically how the two are often fused together. Um, Hamer attends this mass meeting um, and this is a meeting that had been organized by activists in the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, also known as SNCC. Um, I think many people know about SNCC because of the work of, you know, someone like Bob Moses, who recently passed away. Uh, and Hamer attended this meeting. Um, really, you know, she was interested in learning more about what they had to say. A friend had encouraged her to attend. Uh, and it's at this meeting, she's listening to uh, she's certainly hearing preachers expound the word of God. So this is happening. And then she's hearing the, you know, from the activists who are sharing about their stories and, you know, their experiences, but even more so they are shedding the light on the importance, right, of the vote and letting people know about their constitutional rights as citizens of the United States. And according to Hamer, that's the first time that she learns about her constitutional rights. That's the first time that she um, comes to an understanding that she can vote. At that time, Hamer is 44 years old. Many of the activists uh, you know, who she's listening to at that meeting are much younger. Many of them uh, are college-age students uh, you know, involved in this student-led grassroots organization. Uh, but this is a moment that I think really shaped her political activism. It was a moment where she not only understood the power of the vote and, and, and set out to become a voting rights activist, spe specifically in Mississippi, but that was also the moment where she found her calling, her spiritual calling. She saw that it was God's will for her. She firmly believed that God had ordained for her to be part of the movement, and she believed that he would use her as a beacon of light, uh, really to shine into a world of darkness, to really work to, to eradicate racism and white supremacy. And so I think this is a moment that we have to focus on when we think about Hamer's you know, development. I would say too that she was always drawing comparisons to Jesus. And, and this is key because you know, she would quote from the book of Luke, often referencing you know, the passage speaks about, you know, Jesus coming to set the captives free. And Hamer drew a parallel to herself in the sense that she saw her calling as one that was, that was so connected, you know, in, in a way that it was 
she too, through her voice, through her political work, would also set the captives free. Um, and so that's why she devoted her life to advancing civil rights and human rights. And really, I think coming up with, you know, she came up with all kinds of strategies to address an array of problems, not only um, in the Mississippi context, but really on a national level. More MIP after this message. And that's very important, too, in the sense that women, Black women, were not really considered or really allowed to be leaders of the civil rights movement, were they? And women made, right. made spaces for themselves, provided mm -hmm. leadership, but, but men, they were always secondary to men. Mm -hmm. um, for, for those of us growing up a few years later, though, hearing her name, it's very, very clear she was a leader and a significant mm -hmm. force, mm -hmm. whether or not she was recognized in that way during her lifetime, right? Absolutely. And I think this is true, really, for, for much of uh, African-American history. I mean, if you look at an array of political and social movements, there are always these moments where, uh, you know, from the outside looking in, it's often, you know, it's a male-dominated narrative. It's, it's always this charismatic male figure um, that's the person who's getting all the press, right? That's the person people are going to asking the questions. What's interesting, however, is that oftentimes what's happening is, you know, behind the scenes, the women are organizing and they are making it possible for that person to grab the mic in the first place, right? And we see that in the context of the Montgomery bus boycott. You know, I always remind people that, yes, we talk about Martin Luther King Jr., he is so vital to the history, certainly would not suggest otherwise. But I, I always remind my students that Martin Luther King Jr. came to prominence right in the context of the Montgomery bus boycott. Well, that's a boycott that was organized and established by women, uh, women you know, in the Women's Political Council who came together, who had an idea to challenge the, the racist practices, you know, the segregationist practices that were taking place in Montgomery, Alabama, and they made it possible. For Martin Luther King Jr. to even emerge as, you know, the, the face of the movement in that particular context and his career takes off and, you know, we, the rest is history. Uh, but, but that is true. In, as you mentioned, similar to Fannie Lou Hamer and so many others, they were vital to the movement. They were vital not only as activists, but I like to emphasize this point, but as strategists. This is so key. You know, we often talk about what people do but I, all, I always think it's important to reflect on what people think, because we have to understand the strategy that goes into political activism. You know, I think it's one thing, you know, to talk about folks marching in the streets. I mean, all that is important. But, but it's also key to recognize that people have to strategize even before they get out into the streets. Right. They have to figure out how to effectively organize, how to get the message across. What message do you want to convey? I mean, all of these things are, are taking place behind the scenes. And here's where we see women operating as not only uh, activists, but as intellectuals, uh, as producers of knowledge, right? I mean, these are the, the, the things that are, that are so key to all political and social movements. Yeah. She, you mentioned uh, earlier that she was disabled mm -hmm. and that was a result of, of an arrest in Mississippi. She was mm -hmm. a victim of police violence, wasn't she? 
She was. And Fannie Lou Hamer, um, you know, walked with a limp and she had a limp which she later credited to um, an earlier childhood experience where she contracted polio. But the beating that she endured in Winota, Mississippi in 1963 ultimately worsened that limp. And, and it's also, it also led to kidney damage. It also led to a blood clot um, in her eye. I mean, it's, it's really, I mean, I, sometimes when I go over and listen to her tell the story over and over again, she would tell the story of what she endured it stops me in my track because, you know, at the one hand, she's talking about 1963, but on the other hand, you could, you could just see the connections to everything we have witnessed, right, over the last couple of years, at least. Um, and this is partly why I wanted to draw those connections in the book as I do to what's happening today. We think about George Floyd, right? We think about Breonna Taylor. We, we think about Sandra Bland, I mean, all of these names I think people know there's there's no way you could be living in the United States and not have heard any of those names but when you hear Hamer's testimony you know in 1963 it it really helps you see how much these challenges persist in American society I mean it's 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 quite shocking I think for for people to recognize that in 1963 that a black woman uh, would be beaten in this way you know in a prison cell why because she was trying to organize people to vote. That's the so-called crime that had been committed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you're right about that. More MIP after this message. I wonder, well, let me ask this first. Your previous book, folks, Dr. Keisha Blaine with us. Well, currently, you know, there's another book out. Many have been talking about 400 Souls, which mm -hmm. she co-authored and edited uh, with Ibrahim X. Kendi. You want to check that out. She's also the author of Set the World on Fire, Black Nationalist Women and the Global Struggle. Would Fannie Lou Hamer somewhat fall into the category of a Black Nationalist woman? I don't think so. And, and I'll tell you why. For, for the women who I talk about in Set the World on Fire, these are individuals who had core beliefs um, you know, that centered around uh, certainly economic self-sufficiency. And, and we can see that thread you know, to Fannie Lou Hamer. But they were also interested in Black separatism, which is key. Okay. I focus on a group of women who, you know, decades before the Black Power movement, they were talking about actually physically leaving the United States uh, to relocate to West Africa. You know, they were mm -hmm. trying to go to Liberia for the most part uh, in the 30s and 40s. And, um, and in the 50s, you know, they were thinking about going to other places. And of course, with, with Ghana following independence uh, in 57. Uh, and so... What I talk about in, in, in this new book on Hamer is that we do see the threads to Black nationalism, certainly economic self-sufficiency. Hamer was very clear about this. You know, the emphasis on, on Black pride, on African heritage, absolutely, we can see those threads to Hamer. But I think that point of Black separatism, Hamer did not, did not embrace. And I think it's, you know, there are various reasons, you know, looking at her life, why she didn't embrace that. Well, first and foremost, she was from Mississippi, and she was committed to staying in Mississippi. That's something that I think we have to grapple with. We understand even the context of the Great Migration. We understand how many people left the South to relocate to northern cities, to relocate to uh, the West, to escape you know, this system of, of Jim Crow, um, and also to pursue an array of opportunities. Hamer's family remained in the South. 
Hamer herself, even after enduring all kinds of, I mean, we, we already talked about the brutal beating in 63, she could have easily packed up her stuff and say, I'm not staying here any longer. My life is, is constantly threatened. Uh, you know, I have to be worried about myself, my family. I, I'm, I'm a target all the time. I might as well just, I could just go to Harlem. I could organize in Harlem. I'm not, and I'm not suggesting mm-hmm. that there weren't challenges in Harlem too. We, we certainly know that racism persisted in all areas of the United States. But my point is that she chose to stay with the people who I think nurtured her and she wanted to fix the problems locally. So she was at one hand looking, focused on the local and the national and, and to an extent, as I talk about in the book, the global. So, so when we think about her, you know, through the discussion of black nationalism, I think she resisted the notion of packing up and leaving the United States. No, she wanted to stay and she wanted to make it better and push that narrative. So that's the the main reason why I wouldn't classify her as a Black nationalist. But as I point out in the book, we see the threats. We certainly see how Black nationalist thinkers had an influence on her. And what I love about Hamer's story is she never criticized people. You know, she didn't, she didn't criticize folks like Stokely Carmichael. So even as she would not classify as a Black nationalist, she didn't criticize Black nationalists. She respected their their views and even when others thought oh this is a radical approach you know as we're talking about the context of black power Hamer refrained from from critiquing activists that way she valued their their ideas even if she didn't always agree with the approaches Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. wonder what she would think in, in this moment if she were with us now finally in the last few years there's been a recognition that black women are the foundation mm-hmm. of the Democratic Party. I wonder how she would would feel about that. And and then too, tell us what about 1964 because she really was rabble rouse in 1964, even more mm-hmm. so than some of the men in power. She, you know, she was the one that was non-negotiable, right? Exactly. Wow. You know, Fannie Lou Hamer. Uh, in 1964, as I think many people would know, and in August of 64, gave this fiery, you know, powerful speech at the Democratic National Convention. And just to take a, a few steps back, she helped to establish an organization, a part, you know, called the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party, several months before that DNC gathering. And this was a party that really, uh, you know, she helped organize to challenge the Mississippi Democratic Party. The state party uh, excluded black political participation. Uh, you know, they, they certainly said they didn't, but it was clear that they did. And I, I think it's important to remember that, you know, the context, we're talking about 1960s. In the state of Mississippi, only an estimated 5% of black people in the state were registered to vote, 5%. And this is a time where the population is somewhere around 450,000. So that means that very few people are registered to vote. And we know that there are all of these strategies to block them from the ballot box anyways, certainly violence, you know, through groups like the KKK, uh, but also all of these. um, So, I mean, they're legal, uh, but they're unfair strategies, right? So things like literacy tests, 
asking people an array of questions that even the white folks asking the questions did not know the answer to, to those mm, questions. Right. But right. using it as a way to say, oh, nope, you can't register to vote. You didn't pass that test. And so this was the circumstance, uh, you know, leading up to the 1964 convention. Hamer wanted to shed the light on voter suppression, um, and she wanted to challenge the state party. And she was demanding that the M, you know, that the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party be seated at this convention. And as as one can imagine, not many people appreciated that. What is interesting about that convention, uh, there are several things. One, I'm always struck by the fact that Hamer terrified the president of the United States. (laughs) Lyndon B. Johnson decides to hold an impromptu press conference in order to steer attention away from this fiery black woman giving a testimony. It doesn't work because in the end, later when the testimony is aired and people are able to watch it, you know, from the comfort of their homes, they are just captivated by her words and they are moved to action. And it's not it is so important to understand that all this took place right before the passage of the Voting Rights Act of 65. So Hamer's story is fundamental to this. But the other thing that's interesting that I think a lot of people may not know, um, which they might find interesting and, and perhaps surprising in the book, is the tensions that Hamer encountered among civil rights activists at that convention. You know, it's one thing for LBJ to be worried about Hamer or even for white supremacists to be frustrated that this person is coming to shed the light on the challenges taking place in the South, you know, as it pertains to the the vote for Black people. But what she was dealing with is something that I think people will find familiar in the sense that there were these establishment folks, right? I mean, individuals like Martin Luther King Jr., like Baird Rustin, like Roy Wilkins from the NAACP. And these are very important civil rights activists. But the thing about it is they were thinking about what one might describe as the long game. So they didn't want to ruffle too many feathers at that convention. They were thinking about the elections, right? The presidential elections that would take place in November. And they were thinking, listen, let's not do anything to disrupt too much because we want to be able to work with the president, right? We, you know, we want to be able to work with the National Party. Hamer had no time for that. She's like, I don't have time for politicking. I don't know what this is. I'm here to demand that we are seated. I'm here to call out the racism. I'm here to call out the exclusion. Mm-hmm. And, um, and when she was offered two symbolic seats, she said no. Um, and all these other civil rights activists said, no, take it, take it, take it. It's, it's a good thing. It, yes, we know it's symbolic, but just take it. It's, it'll show a good faith gesture. She says, no, I'm not here for symbolism. Symbolism mm-hmm. doesn't save anyone's life. Right? Symbolism isn't going to fix the problem in Mississippi. And so all of these tensions, I think, came to the surface um, in the convention. And it was difficult for Hamer, but she held her own and refused to compromise. Yeah, yeah. And thank God she didn't. What would you say to, and you, you're a teacher, so I mean, I'm asking you a question that you probably address many times. Why is it important that young Black women, for that matter, young Black women and men, mm-hmm. um, read your book and embrace the life of Fannie Lou Hamer? How is it applicable to all of the struggles we are facing today, Dr. Mm-hmm. Black? Wow, so many reasons. 
over the last year, this is true, I think, for, for many educators across the country, I, I, you know, I would have students walk into my classroom, and this was a moment, you know, of the, the last presidential election, and some of them would be very discouraged, and, and they would say, listen, I, you keep talking about the importance of the vote, but what's the point? What's the point of, of, of voting when, you know, it's probably not going to change anything, you know, and you hear people say that, and I'm not suggesting that electoral politics fix it, you know, that it would fix everything. We know that it takes a range of strategies. I always tell people it never takes one thing. It, you know, it will always take multiple strategies, multiple approaches to dismantle any system of oppression. History has taught us that. Right. But I say to my students, you have to think about someone like Fannie Lou Hamer, all that she endured, all that the activists in SNCC endured. We're talking about decades of exclusion and discrimination. I also say to them, consider that in the 1960s, right, Fannie Lou Hamer, she is being beaten and attacked for demanding rights that supposedly are already granted in the U.S. Constitution. So we're talking about the 13th Amendment to end, you know, legal slavery in the United States. We're talking about the 14th Amendment, birthright citizenship, and we're talking about the 15th Amendment, which would have granted um, access to the vote for, for Black men in particular. All of this takes place in the 19th century. Yet, Hamer, in 1962, right, joins a movement trying to um, expand Black uh, voting rights and has to go through all of what she went through uh, in order for us to witness the passage a year later, you know, after the DNC convention right, of the Voting Rights Act of 65. And so I say to my students, how do you then with all of this knowledge, tell me that you're not going to exercise the right right to vote um, when you have the ability to do so. When, when you, I, and I'm not suggesting that people aren't still facing challenges. We know that they are because we're dealing with voter suppression. But if you have the means to do so, you have to do so. If, if for no other reason than to honor the legacy of someone like Fannie Lou Hamer. So I think that's an important part of the story. The other thing, too, is that we we live in a society where, you know, people, there's a general, you know, a blatant disregard for Black people. Um, you know, as a, as a Black woman who spends a lot of time in academic spaces, I can tell you it doesn't matter how far you go. It doesn't matter what degrees you obtain. It doesn't matter all of the awards and accomplishments. I would walk into a room. And um, and people will assume immediately, right, that I that I know nothing because that is the default for how Black people are treated in this country. We know this to be true, right? I mean, our day to day experiences remind us, you know, painfully remind us of of racism, both individual and institutional. And so, when I tell these stories, um, particularly for my Black students and and other marginalized, you know, groups too, I think what it does. Um, it helps them to see the way that they could shape society, right? It helps them to see that, look, look at what someone who had so many odds against her, right? I mean, someone with a sixth grade education from the state of Mississippi, um, you know, who had few material resources, if she could use her voice, if she could stand up the way that she did, uh, to effect change, right? Imagine the possibilities before us. I think it's it's an uplifting story, but my hope is that once it uplifts you, then it compels you to figure out how you too 
can contribute in a positive way. So there's so many reasons why this story is important. Lastly, there has always also been this tension, and it's kind of even more easily have the women's march and everything between black feminists, black womenists, and and white feminists. Was did how did white women react to Fannie Lou Hamer? I can imagine how those in the South reacted to her, but in terms of of white liberal women on the come up, how, how did they deal with Fannie Lou Hamer? Mm-hmm. Well, Fannie Lou Hamer made many of them uncomfortable. Um, And it's it's not surprising because, you know, I mentioned earlier how she spoke honestly, you know, just honestly, just radical honesty. I mean, that's what um, Hamer did. She didn't mince words. Uh, You know, a lot of people try to express themselves, um, you know, in a way that uh, doesn't hurt the other person's feeling or or perhaps doesn't, um, you know, impact their comfort level. Hamer didn't worry about that. She told you the truth. That's what's called, that's what we call today, respectability <laughs> politics, right? That's, yes, that's, yes. That's, that's what Absolutely. And Lou Hamer went bad on it. She didn't have time for it. Okay, go ahead. No, no time for it. She rejected <laughs> it completely. And people people hated that, right? And we, we see that to this very day, this notion that, well, if you're going to call out a problem, you know, lower your voice, you know, <laughs> you know or, you know, say it a certain way. I mean, we, we still have these, these sort of influences, I think, uh, in the way that we talk about politics and how to approach problems. And Hamer, I mean, I, I, you know, as you were asking me the question, I thought about Hamer standing in front of members of the National Women's uh, Political Caucus. This is 1971. And she's standing in front of this group, which she helped, you know, to establish because she was committed to women's empowerment. She was committed to the idea that, you know, women should serve in public office. She's standing in, in front of these women. Hundreds are present many of them white, and she's calling out racism in the ranks, and she's calling out white supremacy, and she's telling them, listen, I'm not impressed with your talk about, you know, dismantling sexism and patriarchy. That's great, but are you going to talk about classism? Are you going to talk about racism? You know, you have to talk about the multiple systems of oppression. And then she said to them, you you are complicit. Um, You are beneficiaries of white supremacy. I mean, these are the things that she would say without any regard for how uh, others would take it. What I will say is to the credit, you know, of, of many of these white women, you know, many of them allowed themselves to be transformed by the encounter with Hamer. And in fact, you know, the, the National Women's Political Caucus that I mentioned, what is so great about it is because of Hamer's prodding, um, and also along, you know, another, an array of other black women in the group, including Congresswoman Shirley Chisholm, you know, from New York, they, as a group, decided to adopt an anti-racist policy. It's sort of part of their practice where they would acknowledge in writing that they would not support political candidates who in any way endorse racism and white supremacy. So that was, I think, a concrete, you know, concrete evidence of how Hamer changed those around her for the better. Yeah, yeah. Thank God for her. Folks, we invite you uh, to check out Until I Am Free by Dr. Keisha Blaine, our very special guest. The book just out this month, Fannie Lou Hamer's Enduring Message to America Until I Am Free. Dr. Blaine, we thank you. What, what's your next book? I know this is in your last one. What's your next book going to be? <laughs> I'm writing a book on human rights told through the ideas and experiences of Black women from 1865 to the present. You know, So I'm doing this sweeping history 
to show how vital Black women have been to the struggle for human rights all the way uh, to Black power. I'm very excited about it. Okay, you got, uh, you got Queen Mother Moore in there? I do, I do. I absolutely do. <laughs> I, I, I was blessed to have met her and spend time with her. Uh, and she continues to inspire us today uh, in the ongoing reparations movement as we try to get HR 40 fed. So, so that's wonderful. That's wonderful. Dr. Keisha Blaine, she's also on Twitter. Uh, she's a thought leader as well. She publishes at MSNBC.com. You may follow her on Twitter as well. Uh, at Keisha Blaine. Check her out there as well. Congratulations on the book. Thank, Thank you, you for keeping our ancestor spirit alive. Okay. Thank you so much. Thanks for getting woke and listening to Make It Plain. Please remember to listen, like, and wherever you get your podcasts, please give the show a five-star rating. And please do spread the word. Let's all continue to pray for each other during this pandemic and this police-demic. If all hearts and minds are clear, it has been Made Plain. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. MIDI clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com.